0: Just a minute ago, I spoke briefly about my love for the last hymn that we sang, It Is Well With My Soul. But there's more to this hymn than just the lyrics. I don't know if you know, but there's a fascinating story behind the circumstances to these words that were chosen for the song. It Is Well was written by Horatio Spafford, and he was a well-liked lawyer who had never written any hymns before. He had a wife named Anna and had five children, one boy and four girls. Horatio and Anna would go through a great deal of suffering in a very short amount of time. Tragedy first struck in 1871 when their young son died of pneumonia. Then only a few months later, the Great Chicago Fire engulfed Horatio's home and his law firm. Now two years later, After that devastating fire, God had blessed the Spaffords enough that they were able to go on vacation to Europe. But at the last minute, Horatio was called away on business and was unable to make the trip. His wife Anna and the girls, they still decided to go. And on November 21st, 1873, another tragedy struck. The ship that they were going on was struck, it was rammed by an iron sailing vessel and sank within minutes. Over two-thirds of all the passengers aboard were killed. Anna was picked up unconscious on a floating piece of driftwood, but the four children had drowned. Upon arriving into England, she sent her now-famous telegram to her husband, Horatio, that just read this, Saved Alone. On his way to meet Anna, he penned the lyrics to the hymn that we now know, It Is Well With My Soul. Born out of his grief and his suffering, yet looking to Christ and the eternal hope in heaven. Specifically, he wrote this um, in in the verse that we don't normally sing. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live, if Jordan above me shall roll, no pain shall be mine, for in death as in life, thou whisper thy peace to my soul. Sadly though, his suffering was not yet over. They returned to America, and God had blessed Anna and Horatio with three more children. Yet one would soon die of pneumonia again. Yet looking back on the end of his life, his oldest daughter, his oldest child, she released the final verse which had not been had yet been seen of this hymn. And this last verse is the last verse we normally sing. Looking back on his life as a whole, as what God had done to him, and this is what it says: And Lord haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. He was trusting in God's sovereignty in the midst of his suffering, responding in humility. The life of Horatio Spafford is similar to the application of 1 Peter 5. He looked at Jesus as his Savior and his chief shepherd. He continued to follow Scripture even though so much had been taken away from him, like Job. And he continued to love God as evidence in his famous hymn. In 1 Peter 5, we see Peter encouraging us to respond to our own suffering in a similar manner. To look to our shepherds. To live according to God's word and to love as God has loved us. The apostle Peter in, first, in chapter 5, at the, this is the end of his epistle. He has been writing to us, or he's been writing to the church in Asia Minor for the last four chapters, sharing with them to, 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 um, to be humble, to submit. And now he's saying to look to your shepherds. Right after he spent the last chapter and a half of saying how we get suffering and how we may suffer, he now tells us how we must respond to our suffering. When we read the first five verses of this chapter, you may have only heard it usually outside of today in the context of bringing on new elders. Or even a month ago, um, when you installed me as your new associate pastor, this was read and this was given expounded upon. Usually this passage is only seen as in the context of what elders should do and to remind them of their duty, to charge them with it. But it's more than that. In the context of the whole chapter, actually in the whole book of 1 Peter, he is not only sharing with the churches what their elders should do, but what the church as a whole must do when they are facing suffering. Peter's encouragement to the elders is clear that they are to lead in the midst of their suffering, so that the people under their care are able to look to them for aid and for counsel. He calls them to be shepherds. Now, we see this idea of shepherding a lot in Scripture. We see it referred to a lot a lot. Actually, it's probably even rare that you hear the concept or the the occupation of shepherding outside the context of Scripture because it really doesn't play any part in our culture. Now, shepherds, they are people who not only feed their sheep, but they take care of them. It's not like it's a nine-to-five job, which they just leave the sheep and go home. No, they sleep with their sheep, no matter the weather. They help protect them from other predators. They guide them. They lead them. They give them direction on where they are to go. And they discipline them when they are disobedient. All of this is done out of love for their sheep. It's not only a job. It is their life. It is their calling of who they are to be. These shepherds that Peter is referring to in the first five verses are the ones that are not looking after an actual flock of sheep, but they are looking after the people that God has placed in their care. Individuals and families which are part of the local body of the church. These shepherds, they are the elders of the local church, the overseers, the protectors, the teachers and preachers of God's word. The ones who rule and govern the church who do so out of love for God and for His people. Peter also teaches that these shepherding elders should not desire the office so they may gain power and influence, nor should they be domineering in their leading, but rather be examples that the church can look to as they look towards their chief shepherd in Jesus. This is what we must do as well. We must look to our shepherds, the men that God has called to be the leaders of His church as they look to Jesus as their chief shepherd. God has called them to lead for such a time as this, whether you may be suffering in pain, in sorrow, in sadness, in joy, or in peace, look to your shepherds for guidance. Look to them to tenderly care for your spiritual well-being. For this is what they have been tasked to do by God. They have been called, like Psalm 23 shows, to tenderly care for you. To protect you and to live in sacrificial service for you. So how should we respond to their leadership? Submitting to their oversight not out of a compulsion, but in humility. This is part of being a member of the church, voluntarily submitting yourself to the leaders that God has appointed to lead our church, knowing that they are not perfect, knowing that you may not agree with them on every issue, but knowing that God has placed them as shepherds of you. The idea of submission Peter wrote about only a few chapters ago back in 1 Peter 2 and 3 was specifically talking about wives submitting to their husbands and submitting to the government. Here Peter is saying that we must also humbly submit ourselves to our elders. Willingly submit to their leadership and oversight by the power given to them as shepherds operating under the authority of Jesus. Looking and following them as they follow Christ, as Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, this in no way means that we must not also submit ourselves to Jesus. He is God. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who lived a perfect life, excuse me, free of sin, dying a sacrificial death. Paying the debt that we owe because of our sin and raising to life again, defeating death. And whoever believes in him will have eternal life with God. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He is the one who we must chiefly submit, but we are also appointed, but he also appointed people to lead as under shepherds in his name. He has called them to lead. Just as he calls people to be part of his family, trusting them as they operate in the name and in by the power of Jesus. So while we must submit, while we are in the midst of our sufferings, while we may be suffering like Horatio Spafford, losing a loved one, grieving at the loss of a relationship. Being persecuted for our faith, feeling the waves of sorrow roll, we can look to our shepherds to help us through the pain. For that is what being a shepherd is all about. Now at Harvester, this is how we operate with our ruling elders. Called by God, trained as elders, and voted on as the congregation. Each elder has, a fa- has families that they are to be overseers of to guide them, to pray for them so that they may help them in ways that they are in need. Now, if you don't know who your shepherding elder is, I, I suggest that you go and to look at, um, out, out in the narthex. We have a list of who your shepherding elder is. And if you don't have one, I ask you to contact the session so about being under their care. So that in all of this, they may live side by side with you. They may be able to guide and counsel you. And I encourage you to share with them what God is doing in your life. Reach out to them as they also reach out to you. This is part of their calling as elders and as shepherds to the flock of the local congregation. To the local family of God. For they are your brothers in Christ. So look to your shepherds both to, as we both together look to the chief shepherd, Jesus, who is leading us. Now, not only does Peter encourage us to look to our, our shepherds, he also encourages us to live according to God's word while we in the, are in the midst of our suffering. We see this in our next set of verses, 6-11. to 11. Now, most of the time when we encounter suffering, we tend to think of it as some mountaintop experience, in that it will only happen for an intensely short amount of time, and then it will be over. Rather, rarely do we conceive of suffering in the context of long-term suffering, days, weeks, months, years, decades. Yet suffering has no timetable except one. If you know Jesus as your Savior, then your suffering will come to an end with your death. But what are we to do with the time that God has given us? The Apostle Paul wrote and was sung about in our hymn prior the idea of to live for me is Christ and to die is gain. How are we to live in our day-to-day lives when we are suffering? How are we to live in the time between becoming a follower of Christ and being with God in heaven? Verses 6-12, to 12, they show us how we are lit to live day to day in our times of suffering. By living in humility. By resisting Satan and by devoting ourselves to prayer. Let's look at that first command. Humble yourself. Humility is not something that our culture looks positively on or really values at all. I mean, the common term is meekness is weakness, but it is truly nothing of the sort to humble yourself, to make yourself subject to the one who is in charge of you. That is what humility is. You are, sub- you are submitting yourself, you are humbling yourself before your creator. Before your ruler, before your king. Excuse me, for you are his creation. And we see in the context of verse six, in the presence of God's mighty hand, we ought to be fully aware of our need for humility. For we are nothing compared to him. Therefore we should subject ourselves in such a manner that we put our confidence in in God alone, knowing that it is God who cares for you and wants you to be completely dependent upon Him. Humility, it's not something that we are commanded in the abstract sense in this verse. No, we see it lived, or sorry, it's not only something we see commanded in this or just in an abstract sense. No, we see it in how Jesus lived Himself. Next week, we're going to see on Palm Sunday, we're going to be beginning a new series. We're going to be looking at how Jesus is worthy of our worship. We're going to be looking at Mark 11, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Not a kingly horse, not with royal guards or a legion of angels, on a humble donkey. He is the perfect example of what our humility should look like, even in the midst of our suffering. For God's power in verse 6 says, God's mighty hand, and it shows us that he is sovereign over all things. And that this power and this might, as it says in verse 7, that we must cast all of our anxieties upon him. Now to cast it means to throw like if you were if you're a fan of fishing which which I am not but I've done so in the past if you're going to cast your rod cast your reel you are throwing that bait as far from you as possible giving it all up to him is what we are supposed to be casting our anxieties to knowing that he will take care of them and give us peace for he is in control over all things even our suffering For as a wonderful hymn so eloquently exhorts, this is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. And best of all, not only is God in sovereign control of all things, if you are a follower of God, you are His child. He cares for you. He loves you. He cares for His children because he listens to them. He answers their prayers. And he will help you through your fears and your anxieties. Either taking them away for you or, change or removing them and supporting you through it. God will not leave you. Now, humbly resting in the knowledge of Christ's sovereignty... And by casting our anxieties upon him does not imply a complacent Christian life. The second command that Peter gives is to live according to Scripture by resisting Satan. Verse 8 shows us this. That while we are resting in God's sovereignty, we are also called to be sober-minded and watchful. For Satan is like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Now Satan's threats and assaults, they manifest in so many ways. Like rampant idolatry, distortion of sexuality, or as one theologian put it, the roar of social revolutionaries pushing legislation, laws, and fines against those who will not join them in reshaping society these temptations we must not submit or succumb to them and follow in that sin. Giving into our suffering though it may seem overwhelming for just as Satan's temptations come in many forms so do his threats and we must be sober minded and watchful and we must have the, watch, well, the sober-mindedness and watchfulness that comes with close communion to God in prayer. So that we may acutely discern the spiritual dangers lurking all around us. In response to this assault by Satan, we are called to resist him. Firm in our faith, as verse 12 indicates. Knowing that these same type of assaults, these same type of sufferings are being experienced by our brothers and sisters in Christ all throughout the world and throughout history. As we have seen with Horatio Spafford and as we will soon see with others. So how do we resist? We resist by holding fast to the Word of God. As seen in John 5. Spiritual opposition that we face it's nothing new, and we are not alone in facing it. Many have walked down this road before us, and many are walking alongside of us now. As Hebrew 12, 1 states, Take care, you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We are to seek advice and wisdom, whether in books or in a person, as we saw before by looking to our shepherding elders. That is their call to guide and to care for you as you resist Satan and his schemes and to rely on the Holy Spirit who is at work in you. The third command that Peter gives to live according to scripture is by his own example to pray now this last, these these last few verses in this section they don't necessarily look like a prayer, but only when, when we read them in that context it becomes plainly obvious this prayer is a short and simple prayer yet the context of this prayer it is a dense one like like a over high like, like hydrated batter becoming really dense in this the comm- in this he commands christians to seek to better know god because he is all of grace which we can do by being in his word daily to focus our minds on the things above by knowing the end result of our suffering is being with God forever and being restored into a right relationship with Him. All while knowing that God will always fulfill His promises during this time of suffering and that we may be able to take refuge in Him for as the great song in my favorite hymn goes, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Such powerful and true words which we should seek to echo in our prayers as well as we live according to God's word. When we read 1 Peter 5, 6-11, I keep being reminded Of the wonderful example of a man who, these verses, while in the midst of suffering, lived. You may know the you may you may have heard of the missionary David Brainerd. Now, those of you who do not know him, he he was a missionary to Native Americans during the Great Awakening. He was a friend of the famous theologian Jonathan Edwards. His life inspired so many modern missionaries. Brainerd is known for being one of the first well-known missionaries to the Native Americans. Yet, he continually suffered from physical, mental, and spiritual attacks throughout his life. In which it was a very short life. He died at the age of 29. During his life, he had both of his parents die before the age of 10. Before he was the age of 10. He suffered from tuberculosis from the age of 21 onwards and he had deep battles with depression. Yet God also had him minister to Native Americans in New York, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey, where he planted a number of churches and saw many come to faith in Christ. And near the end of his life, he wrote this, I could have no freedom in thought of any other circumstance or business in life all my desire was the conversion of the heathen, and all my hope was in God. God does not suffer me to please or to comfort myself with hopes of seeing friends, returning to my dear acquaintance, and enjoying worldly comforts. No matter the pain that David Brainerd sought or had seen in his life, he lived according to scripture and looked to Christ for comfort. And he continued to act in accordance with God's Word, even though he had been suffering a great deal. It was not always easy, especially if you ever had a chance to read his journal, which I encourage you to do so. It is one of the hardest books I have ever had to read. But through it we see that he sought comfort and strength in Christ alone. While his body would fail him, and he was emotionally grieved, Christ was strong, and Christ continued to guide him and give him hope, eternal hope in him. If you are like David Brainerd, if you are physically or emotionally suffering or spiritually suffering, humble yourself and come before God in prayer. He is the one who by the power of His Spirit will help you resist the lies and the temptations of the evil one. He is the one who will never leave you in your time of suffering. Because he does, we cannot do this on our own. We can only do it by, through Him. God is sovereign over all things. He is the one we are praying to. He is the one who will never leave you or forsake you. And every time you are suffering, you are being more conformed to the image of Christ. So follow God's Word as the rule of, as the rule of life. Persevere through trials and temptations, knowing that your perseverance is not found in your own strength, but in God's, and His strength is limitless. His mighty hand will guide you and will never let you go. So far this morning, we have looked at how we must respond to our suffering by looking to our shepherds, by living according to God's Word. And lastly today, we're going to look at loving God as He has loved you in the midst of our suffering. We see this in the last few verses, 12 to 14. Now so many times when we read um, the letters, the epistles near the end, in the second half of uh, the New Testament, we usually skip over them, either the introduction or the ending. And the same is true with the verses here a lot of times we skip over them, but these verses are very important to the context of our letter, and they give us one other um, encouragement from Peter in the final section of this it's personal he is writing to two he is writing about two people who he has met and ministered alongside Sylvinius, more no, commonly known as Silas and an unnamed woman in Babylon while well, these comments of the at the end of the book, seem unimportant. They are anything but. Because the context of what Peter is writing in is the suffering in the churches of Asia Minor. His personal greetings, though, are in the same vein. He is encouraging them to love God as he has loved you through the examples of followers of God. Two people they know either by name or reputation. We like the people that Peter is writing to must love God as he has loved us. In verse 12 Peter writes to Silas to stand firm in the true grace of God. Now this phrase is common throughout the New Testament. It's one of the and one of the more known places that it's talked about is in Ephesians 6 talking about the armor of God where the apostle Paul is teaching to the church in Ephesus. About spiritual warfare and how they must put on the whole armor of God. It says this: take, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you will be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now, this phrase to stand firm in both contexts means to solidly and steadfastly not move, or in other words, to persevere at no matter the cost. We are to hold fast to what is true, to love God by persevering while you are suffering, not to give in to temptations, to resist the devil and his schemes, as I spoke about a few moments ago, not letting any amount of suffering change your mind, never going in and saying, okay, Satan, you win. But resisting in the power of the Holy Spirit to sustain you. Sorry, by resting in the power of the Holy Spirit to sustain you, persevering even when you cannot do so on your own. God has given you the tools of spiritual warfare to battle against suffering that you are facing. Ephesians 6, as just mentioned before, makes this quite plain. We must use the full armor of God, including prayer, God, reading God's word, and the power of the Spirit to fight against our adversary's schemes. For as 1 Peter 5.8 said, He is like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. Now just because God gives us the tools to fight back and to defend against temptation and suffering, it does not mean that that fight is going to be easy. Suffering, specifically prolonged persecution, prolonged suffering, may be something that only ends in our death. For example, some of you may know the reformer William Tyndale. If you, uh, if you aren't, um, you may be familiar with what he did. He um, helped by working out and translating the Bible into English. And we can have much to thank, be thankful about that. He felt God to translate it from its original language so that people could actually read it in their own language. Yet the king of England, he did not share this view of Tyndale. And he harshly persecuted him for it. And after he completed his work, he was killed. And in his last breath, he, he prayed these final words, Lord, open the, king's, the king of England's eyes, which in four years they were opened. Tyndale faced great persecution and suffering, yet he continued to stand firm by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the same vein, God may not call you to die a martyr's death, but He may call you to suffer. If you are a follower of God, He calls you to love Him by standing firm on the foundation of the immovable Word of God. This is not the only way that Peter encourages us in the last part of 1 Peter 5. He says for us to love God as, or he encourages us to love God as he has loved us, by loving members of God's family. Verses 13 and 14 call us to love God by loving his people. To love other Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now these verses are are. Not only saying that we should reach out to other Christians, but we should be helping them. And we should not only just love the Christians that are around us, that may be sitting in the same rows at us in our pews, or even just the ones that are in our own church. Not only the ones that are just around us locally, maybe ones that even have a different denomination than us, have a little bit different theology than us, to love all Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ to have fellowship with them, true fellowship with them, which comes from reading God's word, sharing each other's burdens. Now, part of this fellowship that he talks about is something that we don't like to talk about. Verse 14, greet one another with a holy kiss, or greet another, greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, I remember as reading this passage as a teenager, and I asked God, does this mean I need to go around kissing every single girl I know that's a Christian? No, I was wrong, and I did not do that. (laughs) In the culture of Paul's day, and actually in the culture of a lot of um, areas around this world right now, it's customary to give those in your family a kiss and an embrace. Much like we do today when we give someone a handshake, or we give someone a wave, or even, you know, that chin tilt that some people give. But in our culture, we reserve hugs and kisses for very few in our inner circle. But instead of getting caught up in the cultural context of us let's see what is actually meaning. Peter is instructing his readers to greet every fellow follower of Christ the way that you treat your immediate family. You're as a brother and as a sister welcoming them, not only greeting them but continuing a relationship with them in true fellowship. So that you may share life with them as we have in our motto to live side by side with one another. So that you may share your burdens. You may share your grief, your sorrow, your sadness. And also how God is using all of this to shape you into the man or woman of God that He has called you to be. Lastly, in verse 14, to close out the book, Peter gives a benediction. peace to all of you who are in Christ. Not only is Peter saying that we will have peace in Christ, but if we are his followers because of the sacrificial death on the cross applied to our account, he is also saying that we are to love others by encouraging peace among our brothers and sisters in Christ, while sharing the gospel of peace and discipling those who are in us and around us in the family of God. This verse should also remind us to love all our brothers and sisters in Christ, as I said before, and fellowshipping with them from verses twelve to fourteen. We can rest assured that not only do we have God with us while we are suffering, but He will give us perseverance, and that we can have true fellowship with followers of God, some who may God may place in your path that may have strikingly similar Sufferings that you are dealing with or have dealt with. For there is nothing new under the sun. And God places us with people who will help us grow in him. All of chapter 5, it leads us to one final question. Why should I respond to suffering in this manner? The simple answer is this. Outside of Jesus, there is no hope. And there is no peace. But those who are in Christ, there is a certainty that God will bring us peace. If not now, then in heaven with Him. This morning we have seen in 1 Peter 5 that when we respond to our sufferings, we can do so by looking to our shepherd. For you are not in this alone. And that God has called them and placed them in our lives to care and to guide for us. To live according to Scripture no matter what our culture around us may think. And to love God as He has loved us. By standing firm in your faith and loving your brothers and sisters in Christ by having true fellowship with them. For no matter what you are suffering, whatever you may be facing, you can rest assured that God is with you And that the people He has placed around you and the tools that He has given you bring Him glory even in the midst of your suffering. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Holy and Almighty God, I thank You for giving us Your Word. Father, we rest in Your knowledge that no matter the suffering, no matter the sorrow, no matter the pain that we are living in, Father, that you are with us and you have placed around us people we can look to as we both look to you as our chief shepherd. Father, please help us to live according to your word by resisting the devil, by praying to you. And Father, that we must also fellowship with one another as you have called us to do so that we may bring peace to others as you have brought peace to us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. No matter the waves of suffering, grief and pain, or sorrow, or the trials and temptations and sorrows upon us, above all, if you are a follower in Jesus, you can stand strong, as our sermon series said not because of your own strength nor your own perseverance, but because of God's strength and perseverance. For he is the power and endurance to keep you, protect you, and care for you, for he is our only hope, and he has done so throughout the ages and will continue to do so. So in response to our hymn, so response to our sermon today, we're going to sing one final song, the hymn "Our God, Our Help in Ages Past." And I just want to read this so you can meditate on the words as you sing. Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home under the shadow of your throne. Your saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is your arm alone, and our defense is sure. Let us stand and sing our final song, our our God, our help in ages past.